Pastor Brenton. All right. Well, we have teaching notes. They're available on the website. Um, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three, excuse me, Ephesians chapter four. I'm gonna talk about, just give an overview of an Ephesians four community. Ephesians four, so the book of Ephesians, one of the, one of my favorite books in the New Testament, not that that matters to you at all, but it really is one of the highlights of doctrine, Christian understanding, Christian practice in the whole of the word of God. And the book is divided in half. It's six chapters long. The first half, Paul is laying out the doctrine of the gospel of grace in one of the most concise and profound uh, teachings in the New Testament on the grace of God, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And notably to this community, you know, we really uh, emphasize those prayers of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. So those are really important prayers to us. Then what he begins to do in chapter four is he begins to talk about the application of the truths of the gospel of grace, how it's actually worked out and walked out in our lives. And we are going to look at Ephesians four today uh, because the Lord has highlighted this passage to us prophetically several times over the years. And the Lord has highlighted it prophetically because he wants us as a spiritual family to have a vision to walk in the things that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four. He wants us to have a vision for it, to reach for it, to ache for it. And so that's why we're going to touch on this this morning. Well, if you have the handout here, Back in March of 1983, so way long ago, Bob Jones told Mike that we would one day be in Grandview, that the church would move, at the time it was in Overland Park, that it would move over to Grandview, and that it would be next to Harry Truman. And sure enough, we moved to Grandview, and we're right near Harry Truman's land. We actually uh, purchased some of the old Truman Farm on the other side of the highway, and this land that we're on right now was connected to Harry Truman, and that spoke of God's purposes for this ministry related to the nation of Israel. Just like Harry Truman was a political intercessor at the end of World War II for the nation of Israel to become a nation in 1948, so too this people would have a mandate from the Lord to stand for God's purposes related to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. He said that during this time, this is way back in 83, he said that believers in Asia would connect to us through unplugged TV sets that they had in their hands. They would be out working and watching singers and musicians sing from Grandview on unplugged TV sets. Now, we know now that he was talking about smartphone technology, which did not exist back in the time, obviously in 1983. He said that the Lord spoke to him audibly and said this, I will give a grand view of the kingdom to many nations from Grandview. That the Lord would do something supernatural in this little city, and he would do it with us and other churches in this city and in this region that would put on display a grand view of the kingdom that somehow nations would connect to via their smartphones and watching what the Lord was doing in this region. 
It is a very strange and kind of cryptic promise, a grand view of the kingdom from Grandview. Well, about a year later, Mike has a dream, and he's in a church building, and they're celebrating the growth of 24-7 worship and prayer. Now, this is before, way before IOPKC began, which began in 1999. In this dream, there's over 1,000 leaders that are present, and a man comes to Mike in the dream, and he says, proclaim Zechariah 4 unto Ephesians 4, this is where the Lord is taking you. Now, just real briefly, Zechariah 4 is talking about the completion of the foundation of the house of prayer that Zechariah is prophesying to Zerubbabel as they're rebuilding the temple, which is the house of prayer after the Babylonian captivity. So Zechariah is prophesying to Zerubbabel, and it's the famous Verse that many of you have probably heard, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the Lord would lay the foundation and they would lay the capstone and they would celebrate the building of the foundation of the house of prayer. And so in this dream, there's an emphasis that the Lord's gonna begin something with a house of prayer, which we began back in 1999, and that the Lord would take us from a foundation of day and night prayer and bring the body of Christ, bring this spiritual community into a deeper understanding and expression of Ephesians chapter four. And that's what we're gonna look at this morning. When I was thinking about this phrase, what struck me was this last part of the phrase that says, for this is where the Lord is taking you. And why that strikes me is because there is a divine orchestration that the Holy Spirit is doing and stirring and leading with the body of Christ in South Kansas City, in Grandview, that will occur not because of the wisdom, the strategy, or the gifting of leaders. There is a part that we play as believers, as the body of Christ, where we respond in obedience and we don't give up on our assignment. We stay faithful. We read the word of God, we pray, we believe for promises. We don't allow our faith to waver. But there is something supernatural that the Lord wants to release and continue to release in this specific region. That is beyond something that we could make happen through human means or human effort or human ministry. He says, this is where the Lord is taking you. There's a bigger plan going on, and the Lord wants us connected into the bigger plan, the grander narrative of what he's doing both here and in the nations of the earth because he wants the nations to see him and worship him and recognize him as the Lord. And everything that we're doing as a ministry, as a church, as individual believers, is it should be unto the glorifying of Christ and making his name known. We wanna see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit come in a greater measure. We wanna see the release of signs and wonders and miracles that are likened to the book of Acts. We wanna see our children walking in them. We wanna see singers and musicians set on the wall that are prophesying and proclaiming. We wanna see the promises of God related to the outpouring of healing where no disease known to man would stand before the people. We know that there are great promises that are involved. 
We know that there is a part for us to play, and we know that it's only by the grace of God that we will get there, and he alone will receive all the glory and adulation in those days as they unfold. Number one and two on the notes, just given a, a short overview over Zechariah 4 and Ephesians 4. Look down at paragraph C. There is a great need to recapture the New Testament revelation of the church. There is a need for the body of Christ to see, acknowledge, and be moved by the revelation of what God has done in purchasing us from the kingdom of darkness, bringing us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, and making us His body, calling us His body. There's a great need for that. When the church, when believers don't have a revelation of the church, they are more prone to factions, to division, to strife, to ongoing uh, clamor and, and divisions against one another. And the Lord wants to reveal the beauty and the glory of his people, the church. I remember several years ago being in the prayer room and reading through the Bible and reading through Ephesians and I get to Ephesians 5 and I read this verse, you know, it says that the church will be beautiful and glorious. I felt the Lord just interrupt me. I had a sense that the Holy Spirit just interrupted me in that moment as I'm just doing my kind of routine reading through the New Testament and asked me, Isaac, do you have faith to see my church as beautiful and glorious? Can you see it that way? Can you call it forth? Do you have a, a vision, a biblical vision of what the church is, or will you give way to the common narrative among the body of Christ, the common narrative among unbelievers about what the church is? Will you allow hurt people, bitter people, sentimental people, unbelieving people to define what you understand to be my body? Or will you get a vision for the church that I have spoken in the word of God? Will you agree with me? That was the point at the end of the day. And in saying that, what the Lord began to do was begin to confront my own belief related to the church. Because I, like many others, buy into the common narrative about what the church is, specifically related to her shortcomings and then her shortcomings become the definition of who the body of Christ is. And the Lord says, no, that is not who she is. Certainly the body of Christ has shortcomings. But one of the things that I love about the body of Christ is that humble believers are the first ones to actually admit that we're wrong. Have you ever considered how rare that is in the earth for people to publicly, repeatedly admit that they're wrong and that they're shortcomings? You don't see that in big corporations. You don't see that among politicians. You don't see that among other religions and institutions. Everyone is trying to present themselves as the strong as possible, and the Christians are over here going, yeah, we're messed up, we get it, but we got no other options, baby. This is us. We got no other place to go. We've been ruined. We know Jesus is the only way. 
We know he's the only truth. We know he's the only light. He transformed me. He, he set me apart. He called me. He gave me a new name. And it's still hard and weak, but I've got no other options. I'm in this thing. Just the unique ability for the body of Christ to even admit, hey, we're weak, we're broken, we're messed up, but hey, do you wanna join? We'll come know Jesus? I love that about us. It's weird, but... If only we could see, under paragraph C, if only we could see ourselves in terms of what the Lord says about the church, we would realize that we're the most privileged people on the entire earth. That Christians, the body of Christ, they are the most privileged people. They have the indwelling spirit of God. God looked at us, our weak, broken, messed up lives, and he said, I wanna habitate there. I wanna dwell there. I wanna show myself strong on behalf of those people. I wanna give them a new name. I wanna forgive their sin. I want their decisions in secret that no one sees to have, uh, 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 to have continuity in the age to come where our small acts of obedience as moms and dads and in the workplace and our weak prayers and, and our attempts to love God, all of it has significance and meaning and purpose because we are named of Christ and we're found in Christ, and that's where our orientation needs to be. It needs to be in Christ. You have been brought into Christ. Christ has not joined you to be your disciple and follow you around. He has rather called you into what he's doing. He's saying, leave everything behind. Come and follow me. You're now in me. We live for him, therefore we're his body. Ephesians 4, 1. Paul says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He says this word, therefore. Therefore is a transitional word. It means that in light of everything that I've just spoken, this is what I'm calling you to do. What does he do? Well, in chapters one through three, he lays out the work of grace through the cross of Jesus and he says, therefore, or in light of your new position before me of victory, your new position before me in authority, your new privilege before me as a son and as the bride of Christ. He says, therefore, now I'm gonna tell you how we ought to live and how we ought to function. We're gonna build upon this. You know, the Christian isn't working towards some future state of victory, but rather they're working from a place of victory to partner in the purposes of God in our generation. The victory has already been won. It was won on Calvary. It was won through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus, and therefore, because we are victorious, he calls us, he says, walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. The calling of Christ upon our lives. He says, walk worthy of it. Walk in a commensurate way. In other words, what has been poured into you through the gospel of grace, let it flow out of you. You're not giving something that you don't have. 
You're not called to walk in something that is impossible for you to walk in. You're not called to release something that hasn't first been imparted. He says, rather, chapters one through three, I've imparted something to you in victory, and now I'm calling you to walk it out. You're gonna walk it out before the world. You're gonna walk it out in the body of Christ. You're gonna walk it out with one another. But I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling. Now this phrase, walking worthy of the calling, you can think of it like two scales. And on a scale, you have two parts, and as one weight bears down on another part, the other side lifts up. And to walk worthy means that the weight on one side is commensurate or equal to the other side. And so when He's saying to walk worthy. He's saying Ephesians 1 to 3 is now resting down upon you because you've been given something, the spiritual blessings and the riches of God through the gospel. And he says now this other side is meant to bear down too so that there's a commensurate walk. They're, they're equal parts. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, you're gonna express the truths and the reality of chapters 1 two, and three. Not only do we want to express it, but we want to get a vision to go as far as humanly possible in the grace of God that we can in this life. We don't want to be content to only experience a little bit of God when there is much to be had. We don't want to be content to operate in a gifting and a spirit of prophecy and a spirit of humility, and a spirit of love at a two-degree level when God has made to us this vast ocean and resource. I've read through the Bible, and I've never found a cap on how much of God we can actually have and experience in this life. There is no cap. John tells us he gives the Spirit without measure. Luke 11 tells us how much more of the Holy Spirit Will he, will he give to those who ask him, you can have more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. You can experience more of the riches of the knowledge of God if you want to. He's saying, so what has been made available to you? He goes, I want you to tap into that gift and never get content with your life in God, with the power of the Holy Spirit that is operating through you. Never get content. Be grateful, but never get content. Press into the things of God. How far can you go? You know, Paul the Apostle is such a model of this. In Philippians chapter three, he goes, I'm considering everything in my past, everything that I am, and this is what he says. He says, I press on. Even at the end of your life, do you have a vision to press on into the things of God? When you're 80 years old, will you have a vision if you're 80 years old? Do you have a vision to press on into the things of God? How much of God can I get? How much of his love can I experience? How much of his power can I taste? How much of him can I have in this life? Because there is no limit. Scripture does not put a cap on those realities. Go to page two. Paul then goes into the demeanor in which we're, to walk out now this commensurate calling. 
The very first thing that he mentions, he says, now that you've been filled with the gospel, now that you're positioned to walk worthy of the gift that's been granted to you, we need to make note of how highly the Spirit of God emphasizes this right here. Walk with all lowliness and gentleness. He says it's a spirit of humility. I want my people to be pervaded by a spirit of humility. I want them agreeing with the truth of who they are. I don't want them exaggerating it. I don't want them minimizing it. Both are arrogance. I want them in agreement with my truth. The Spirit of the Lord insists. He insists upon humility for the body of Christ. Every leader Every counselor, every member, every man, every woman from every nation, he insists on humility. He wants it. He delights in it. Humility is the magnet of his grace and his mercy. The grace of God flows. The power of God flows into our life when our heart is postured in a place of humility and surrender before him. He's not going to budge on this call to humility. James 4, 6, I have the reference there. James 4, 6, you know it. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. I flipped it around. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God will release grace and the power of his spirit to those that operate in a spirit of humility. You can't just decide to be humble, by the way. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It comes through spiritual transformation. It comes through Christian maturity. The more that we agree with the word of God and what God says about us, what God says about others, what God says about the lost, about our enemies, the more we will become humble before him, agreeing with truth. But James tells us this. He says, God will resist the proud. If you begin to exaggerate who you are and how important you are, if you minimize how important you are, he says God will begin to resist you and begin to resist your life. He will actually actively work. Why does he actively work against us? Because in his mercy, he will resist arrogance because truth and humility is the only way forward in the body of Christ. So in his mercy... He says, if you begin to exaggerate who you are, if you begin to minimize who you are, he says, I will resist you. I will begin to put pressure on you. I will apply pressure to your life and your heart. And this is why this is so terrifying to me, because if God is resisting me, who can possibly help me? I've got no advocate. I've got no aid. No one can resist God. So if some demon shows up, you've got an advocate. If some devil shows up, you've got an advocate. If some evil man or evil woman shows up, you've got an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. But if Jesus shows up and he begins resisting you, who can stay his hand? Who has the power to restrain the arm of the Lord? No one. That is why God insists on his people walking in a spirit of humility, asking for it praying for it, examining our heart, calling one another to it. We must proclaim this. We must talk about this. 
We must strive for this. This is the thing that we're after. Because when we're in a posture of humility before the Lord, then the grace of God begins to flow in our life. I don't mean grace as in forgiveness of sins. I mean the grace of God in terms of the empowerment of the Spirit to help us in our weakness. The empowerment of God that he pours into us, into the battery of our souls, the electric charge necessary to walk in a way that is fully pleasing to him. Because in reality, I'm not that good at loving. In reality, I'm not that good at praying. In reality, I'm not that faithful. I'm not that kind. I'm not that humble. I'm not that lowly. But the Lord says, I will help you if you come to me in a posture of humility. I will give you power to do what you cannot do out of your own strength. Paragraph E. Walk with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Believers, he calls us to this posture of humility, and then he says, we're to suffer long with one another. It's got to be one of the most uncomfortable words in the Bible, long-suffering. It's like you combine it, and it kind of like glosses it over a little bit, but when you stop and think about what he's actually saying, I mean, long-suffering means suffer, also long, <laughs> with one another, with one another. When we think of long-suffering, we kind of give ourselves a pat on the back because what comes to mind are the faces of the three people in our life that really annoy us, you know, that really just chafe us. And if these three people were gone, I would just really love God a whole lot more. Lord, if you would just deal with them, if you would just straighten them out, then my life would be perfect. You know, when, when the annoying person leaves your life, someone else will be there, maybe two or three more people. Because the Lord is committed to your humility. But when we think of long suffering, we think of other people like, wow, aren't I so patient? You know, I have to live in a house with all these other people. I suffer along with them. They don't know how much I bear with them. And just, just pause that for a minute and think about how people in your life have to suffer long with you. And to think that loving you, no matter how godly and mature and amazing you are, people in your life are suffering long just knowing you. No, I mean, really think about that. Like, really, like, oh, my, my kids, my wife, my friends, my family. There's a measure of long-suffering that they're going through just interacting with me on a day-by-day basis. Talk about a humility pill, right? We're supposed to suffer long with one another. And this is so against the culture that's so prevalent in the body of Christ. Nobody wants to suffer long with nobody. As soon as there's an issue, boom, I'm gone. As soon as there's an issue, boom, the marriage is over. Boom, the friendship is over. Boom, I change ministries. Boom, I change churches. I'm just gonna change, 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 change. I don't wanna suffer, and I certainly don't wanna do it for a long time. I'm done. 
Paul goes, no, your life is not your own. You're part of the body of Christ. The eye can't say to the foot, foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you anymore. You can't quit on family and you can't quit on the body. You just can't. You can run, but you can't hide. You leave this church, go to another one, there's gonna be the same weird people there. Leave that church and you're coming here, you're watching this message like, I think I like those guys. I'm gonna come there. They probably don't have any issues. Wrong. We're called to suffer long. We're called to bear with one another in a spirit of love. Jesus bears with you. Have you ever considered that? The bridegroom king, I mean, he's perfect and he's flawless and he's passionate and he's loving us. I'm his betrothed one. He has to put up with me every day. And I'm mostly complaining. I'm mostly just worn out on the verge of discouragement, giving up, throwing in the towel. Lord, even hear me. You know, he's like, what do you mean do I hear you? I came to the earth. I lived your life. I died your death to prove that I love you. I demonstrated my love. Anyway, look at this, paragraph F. Then he says, don't just bear along with one another. He says, endeavor to keep the unity. Now, Paul, in Ephesians 4, he will talk about unity in two different ways. He will talk about keeping the unity here, but then in a few verses, he'll talk about attaining to unity. And we think, Paul, are you confused? How are we supposed to keep something and attain to it? And the truth is, is that there's a measure of unity that God has given that he'll talk about in the next few verses, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and because of the release of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, we are one body, and we have one God, and we have one faith in him. Now, right now, the body of Christ is so fragmented. There's so many factions. There's this group. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of IHOPKC. I am of whoever other ministry. The Lord wants us to keep in mind that when we are in Christ, we are one family and one body in him. And he wants us to be careful to not tread upon the body because that's self-mutilation. If the eye suddenly doesn't like the kidney, starts punching the kidney, that's self-mutilation. The body is destroying itself. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels that a house that's divided can't what? Stand. So he's going, you've got to fight. You've got to endeavor. It has to be intentional. Every person, every believer, everyone with a Twitter account, Facebook account, we have to endeavor to keep the unity of the faith. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to fight for what is true and what is sacred. That doesn't mean we don't challenge one another and sharpen one another. It means that we do it in a spirit of love, the previous verse, also keeping in mind we're bearing long, we're long-suffering, and we're walking in lowliness and humility. See, all of these ideas are building on one another. He goes, by the time you get to endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith. You're already cloaked in humility and in lowliness. You're already long-suffering. You're already willing to bear with one another in love. You're willing to go the distance with them. Jesus is willing to go the distance with you and your immaturity in me, in my immaturity, in my weakness, in my failure. How much more should we also 
with one another be willing to go the distance. Not just cut it off, not just delete, but actually in patience, knowing that some things are not resolved for five, 10, 20 years. He didn't say long suffer for a year and then you're done, you've paid your dues. He said go the distance with each other. Love one another, fight for love, fight for unity. Don't just let it slip by. Don't just let divisions and disputes and secondary things get in the way of the glorious gospel and the riches that we have in Christ and that we all have the same Lord and the same faith and the same baptism. Celebrate one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Pray for the body of Christ. Bless the body of Christ. Speak blessing, blessing, blessing over the bride. It's his wife. The church in fullness, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7. He says this, to each one grace was given according to Christ's gift. I want us to notice how many times here in just these first few points that he talks about giving or a gift. See, Christ has given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men, verse 11, and he gave some to be apostles, prophets, etc., etc. Why? For the equipping of the saints. For the work, work of the ministry, verse 13, why is he giving gifts, giving gifts to people for the equipping of the work of the ministry? Why? So that we would come, verse 13, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To be a perfect man, that means to be a mature bride made ready for Christ. And this phrase, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, this is Paul's vision for the body. This is God's vision. This needs to be our vision. That God has given gifts to equip so that we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we come into mature love just like him. We grow up into all things. We grow up into the head who is Christ. That's the vision that we want for our life. That's the vision that we want for this church. It's not to make your best you live your best life. It's to grow up into the head and become perfect like Christ. Perfect in love, clothed in humility, meek, lowly, humble. These are not the things that sell, you know, conferences. But this is what we're called to. This is the Christian vision to be and walk like Christ. And a lot of people, if you really think about it, if they were really honest, they don't want to walk like Jesus walked. Sure, they want to do the miracles Jesus did, but they don't want to walk like Jesus walked. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of love, and he was betrayed and sent to the cross. He died a horrific death because he walked in these things, because of lowliness, because of long-suffering, because of meekness, because our life as Christians does not see its fullness or even a glimpse of its fullness in this age. We are living for the age to come. If you check your Christian passport, 
it says heaven, stamped. You're a citizen of heaven. That means that your life, your security, your comfort, your meaning, your purpose does not find its full expression in this age with your nationality and where you're from. It's not meant to, and it won't. And it will be very damaging if you imagine that it will because all the eggs go in that basket. That basket burns up at the judgment day anyway. And then what are we left with when we go into the age to come and we meet our beloved face to face? In the generation of the Lord's return, the church is gonna be purified and perfected in mature love. And Paul, in these verses, he's laying out how that's gonna happen, at least partially. Since the cross, there has never been a generation where every believer has walked in perfected love. I mean, what Paul is talking about right here is not just pie in the sky. It's not just a mission statement on the wall. It's an eschatological promise. It pertains to the time of the end where the body of Christ is perfected and she, the bride, is made ready. Look at this, Revelation 19, 7. The marriage supper of the Lamb, that's Christ, has come and his wife has made herself ready. She's ready for him. She's laying down her life. She's overcoming by the blood of the Lamb, the word of her testimony, and she does not love her own life, even unto death. Paragraph H, Christ gave gifts to men, like I highlighted. He gave gifts to the redeemed. These gifts are the tools and the equipping necessary for the body to grow into mature love, to be ready. These gifts are found in the spiritual gifts in these two passages here in the notes. There are also the gifts of leaders in the body of Christ, including the fivefold ministry. And these gifts equip the body for God's generational purposes. Now look at this, paragraph I, which is verse 16. Every joint will supply. That means that every part of the body of Christ, whether in your row 10 or you're listening online, you have a part to play in supplying your gift, your spiritual gift, your resources for the edification of the body so that it grows up into maturity. Everybody's on the hook. I like this. I'm gonna read this, verse 16. Okay, go back to verse 15 real quick. They grow up into all things into him who is the head, who is Christ. That's the vision of your life and the corporate vision of the church, to grow up into all things and to grow up into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body that's the body of Christ, is joined, we're joined together in the spirit, and we're joined with the Baptist ministry down the road, and we're joined with the whoever, whoever in the body of Christ. We're joined together. We may not be joined relationally at the moment. It doesn't matter. God has joined us by the Holy Spirit when he called us into his body. We're joined and knit together from what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Okay, so, so go back. Every joint is supplying. What are they supplying? They're supplying the gifts that came, the spiritual gifts, 
and the gift of offices that God gave to the body of Christ. You have a gift from God inside of you that was put there by the Holy Spirit, and you could cultivate those gifts, you could get more gifts, and you're to use those gifts to strengthen the body. Look at this, to supply the body, what every joint supplies. Why? Because it causes the growth of the body, edifying it in love. So your gift is to be given to the body of Christ. I'm not talking about just financial gift. Some, I could just sense, are hearing that in their brain right now. That is not what I am talking about. Some are thinking that I'm talking about, this is just another message trying to get people to give to the church. That is not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your spiritual gifts in God. You're to use those gifts, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of healing, the gifts of faith, to strengthen and bring other parts of the body into growth, to edify them, to build them up. And so every believer that's a part of this spiritual family that counts this part of their spiritual family here has an assignment from the Lord according to Ephesians 4 to look at the person next to you, to go to your small group, to go to the one that's down the street that goes to the church, the single mom, whoever, and to give them out of your resources, out of your gift, to strengthen them so that they could grow in maturity in God to bless one another. The primary context in which this happens is within our small circle of friendships or relationships that we presently have. So you don't have to go find new friends to go give your gifts. You don't have to get some promotion to go and give your gifts. You don't, have, you don't need a title. You don't need a new position, nothing. Right now, whoever is in your life, those relationships, that's who we're supposed to go and minister our gifts to. Why? Because it will cause the growth of the body into maturity. Okay, I'm gonna invite the worship team to go ahead and come out. I'm gonna go to the very end of Ephesians 4, the very last verse. You can go through these notes on your own another time or just read through Ephesians just verse by verse to hear what it is that Paul is calling the body of Christ to and our part that we're to play. But I wanna go to this very last verse in verse 32 because I think it just, it stands out right now amidst the cultural soup that we find ourselves in and it's the power of forgiving love. You can find lots of different correlations in terms of ethics and moral beliefs in all the different kind of religions and all the different kind of expressions and understandings of worldviews. You can find lots of overlap. But one of the unique distinctives, another one of the unique distinctives, because I mentioned one earlier, about Christianity is the power of forgiving love. God forgives sin. And when he does, 
it goes into the sea of forgetfulness. It's gone. It's never brought up. It's never rehashed. Imagine if God came to you and rehashed all of your sins after you had repented from them. It would be terrible. It would be never ending. It would be the longest monologue in human history. God recounting to me my sins over and over and over again. But the power of forgiving love. Look, listen to this. Paul says, to, to conclude this chapter, he says, be kind to one another. Put on kindness in all that you do. Be tenderhearted. The trick about tenderheartedness is that you don't just fake tenderheartedness. You're either tenderhearted or not. You can't just choose tenderheartedness. It's, it's a fruit that comes through other conscious decisions that you're making and that I'm making in our lives. You have to cultivate a tender heart. You don't just wake up tender. You've got to give yourself to the Lord. You've got to give yourself to prayer. You've got to throw in some fasting. You've got to read the word of God in order to actually have a tender heart. But listen to this. He says, be kind, be tender, and then this, forgive one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgives you. In the same way that God through Christ forgave us of our sins, God calls us to do the same. He says, forgive one another of your sins. Actually, I believe that that is the premier expression of New Testament Christian love is actually forgiving love. I don't have time to break that all down. That God's expression of love that's meant to happen within the body is expressed through forgiving love, covering, 1 Peter 4 tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. It covers them. It forgives them. And when something is forgiven, it's never brought up again. And when we forgive someone in our heart, we don't bring it up again in the same way that God doesn't bring up our sins again. They're covered. It's done. It's forgotten. He says towards one another, towards, you that, towards those that have wronged you, towards those that have mistreated you. He says, I want you to forgive them in the way that I've forgiven you. to bring the service to a close. I want to invite you to stand if you'd like to. We have just a few moments of ministry to just have a few moments to reflect before the Lord. Worship team's going to uh, play here. We just invite the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts with these truths in a deeper way. Holy Spirit, I ask that across this spiritual family, young and old, those that join us online, that count this a part of their spiritual family, Father, I ask for the revelation of the glory of the church that you have spoken forth in your word. I ask for the call to walk worthy of the calling, Lord, that we would walk worthy of the calling that you have in front of us, our assignments, that what has come in through the gospel would come out in our relationships. What has come in through the glorious gospel of grace would come out in our marriages. What has come in and the forgiveness of our sins would come out to those that have mistreated, maligned, spoken evil of us, hurt us, damaged us. That we would forgive them. That we would release them. That there would be a great wave of forgiveness that would sweep through the body of Christ 
in a payback hour, in an hour of rage, in an hour of anger, where everyone is expressing their anger and everyone's offended right now. We ask for a wave of forgiveness to sweep across the body of Christ, to sweep across this family, oh God, that we would forgive others as you have forgiven us. Lord, we wanna be forgiven. We wanna be forgiven of God. Just right now, just picture that person. If you have pain in your heart toward another individual, I want you to picture them. Father, I ask that you would help us to release that individual by your grace right now from all the harm that they have done, from the sin they have committed against us, from the misrepresentation, how we were misrepresented, how we were misunderstood, how we were cheated, lied to, we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace to forgive others in the same way that you have forgiven us. Be kind, tenderhearted. Would, Lord, would you help us? I could see it right now. I could feel the struggle on the inside of some right now and all the justifications, how we are prone to be the exception. Well, Lord, I know that you called me to forgive, but I can't, but it was this, but it was that, but it's ongoing. There are no qualifications. God wants to give the grace to release and forgive those that have hurt us in the same way that he has released us from our sins against him. Holy Spirit, we wanna see what you see. We wanna feel what you feel. Lord, break through this wall of unforgiveness in our hearts. Lord, root out that bitter root in our soul that's taken root over the years where we have relived those accusations over and over and over and it's become a bitter root. God, we ask that you would release the power of the Holy Spirit right now into our hearts, into the unwilling, into the fearful, into the timid, God. We ask that you would release the power of your spirit and that you would flood our hearts with the love of God. For the love of God would drive out fear and drive out torment and release healing power in the name of Jesus. We invite you forward. Anybody in the room, you'd like to receive prayer for anything this morning. The Lord's touching your heart. Maybe you're sick in your body. Maybe you need breakthrough. Maybe you've been wounded by the church or wounded by another person. Maybe you just need the refreshing touch of the Holy Spirit this morning. I wanna invite you to come forward and come stand on these lines. We have a ministry team that's willing and wanting to pray with you, contend with you, believe for you in faith. Anyone that's sick and contending for a, a breakthrough of healing in their life. Those that have children that are sick, they're contending for a breakthrough. I just feel the Lord's highlighting children right now. Holy Spirit, I ask you for our children that you would release the breakthrough of heaven and that you would guard them from the evil one and that the hand of affliction would not touch them. We ask that you would drive back the demonic spirit, the agenda of the enemy to strike our children with infirmity. And we ask that you would arise, O oh God, and let your enemies be scattered as smoke is driven away. Father, drive our enemies away. Drive back ailments. Drive 
back disease. Drive back unbelief. Drive back the spirit of infirmity, God, from our midst.
Sometimes it takes a moment to realize my focus and realize that you're just there. Sometimes it takes a moment to realize my focus and realize that you're just there. This is my husband David and we're the directors of Immerse. And we want to invite you to join us for a five-day deep dive experience into the messaging and the heart of the prayer movement in IHOP KC. We know that the Lord is writing a beautiful story all across the globe and that we play a specific part in that story and that you'll walk away with confidence that you are a part of a larger narrative for all that he is accomplishing in the earth. We know that the Lord is writing his story and we want to invite you to come alongside of us as we partner together to see all that he wants to do through us, his church. Come run alongside with us for five days. Click on the link for more info. We cannot wait to see you.